The works of William Shakespeare are the highest-selling and most studied non-religious texts in history. They've been reprinted in every major language the world over, which is a feat considering they were basically written to keep the playwright's head above water, financially speaking. Many scholars and literary experts proclaim Shakespeare to be one of the greatest authors and playwrights that ever lived. Despite his work being written over 400 years ago, they still remain a cultural touchstone to this day. Really, if you've gone through high school, odds are you've had to enjoy, slash read, slash suffer through, delete according to personal experience, at least one of his plays. Many of his plays gave people at the time insight into what royalty was truly like, how they reacted, and access into what they thought happened in a kingdom that did not exist in the time. Shakespeare wrote many of his plays with what seemed like a first-hand knowledge of how affairs of state were conducted, balanced with a fair amount of filth for the time. He was considered a successful playwright, having many of his plays put on stage and attended by the great and good of the time. However, this isn't going to be about the lifetimes and success of William Shakespeare. This is going to be about the theories that Shakespeare never actually wrote those plays. He was just an actor who was used as a stand-in for the true playwright, whose station or social situation was high or low enough that they could not use their true name. Who is this mysterious person? Well, there's not really a consensus. There are more than 80 different theories for who actually wrote the plays, including multiple kings and one queen of England, the Jesuit religious organization, and Sir Francis Drake, an explorer best known for going around the world in one single expedition. While the vast majority of Shakespearean scholars dismiss these claims as frivolous, it has attracted the interest of many famous public figures, from American author and disability rights activist Helen Keller to Libyan dictator Muammar Gaddafi. In fact, some of these people who believe that Shakespeare did not write these plays were convinced enough that they ended up making their case in front of the Supreme Court of the United States in 1987. How did they manage to get the attention of that august body? And more importantly, why? Also, who are these people that supposedly wrote all of Shakespeare's plays? I'm Braden Thorvaldson, and this is What? Explain. We can start with what the two sides of the issue agree on, which admittedly is not a lot. There was, in fact, a William Shakespeare who was born, raised, died, and was buried in Stratford-upon-Avon, a town of about 1,500 people northwest of London. He was an actor who had some success in London and eventually became a shareholder in the Lord Chamberlain's Men, the acting troupe that owned the Globe Theatre. He married a woman named Anne Hathaway in 1582 and had three children, Susanna, Hamnet, and Judith. That is about all that's agreed on. The arguments about whether or not Shakespeare actually wrote the plays has its roots at the beginning of the 1800s, when Shakespeare was beginning to be considered as an incredible genius and a unique talent. Previously, Shakespeare was considered a good playwright and poet, with his works being performed even after his death, but he was one of many playwrights similarly considered. Once the idea of Shakespeare as a once-in-a-millennium talent and symbol of English poetic genius started circulating, the fact that he had never attended a university, never traveled outside of England, and seemed to have absolutely no court-related experience began to not jibe well with that thought. It was improbable to many of the literary minds of the time, who coincidentally also happened to be university-educated, that someone who had lived most of their life in a small backwater town and worked primarily as an actor and theater manager at the Globe 
had written so convincingly about royalty, court happenings, and ancient history. Their only conclusion was that someone else had to have written the plays and just used Shakespeare as a front or a pen name. The reason for using Shakespeare's name varied according to the theory, but for those who claimed that some member of the aristocracy or royalty wrote it, the reason usually boiled down to the stigma of print at the time. This considered reproduction of literary works produced by the higher echelons of society to be crass or at the very least unimportant compared to the reviews and adoration of their courtly peers. There was a prevalent theory at the time that for a member of the court, they should keep their literary work to themselves only to be formed in private or courtly productions. One of the convenient ways around this would be for the works to be published but under the name of William Shakespeare, who would have taken credit for the plays and a percentage of the profits, and the aristocrat who had written the plays got the satisfaction of seeing them performed in public. As mentioned previously, there are dozens of theories as to who exactly wrote Shakespeare's plays, but the main contenders are Sir Francis Bacon, Christopher Marlowe, and Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford. If you like hidden codes and ciphers, your favorite candidate may be Sir Francis Bacon. An English philosopher, statesman, and Lord High Chancellor of England from 1617 to 1621, Bacon was the first alternate authorship candidate people coalesced around when doubts about Shakespeare began to arise. The reason for Bacon using Shakespeare as a front for his works was simple. He was a member of the government of the day who had his eye on higher office, and if word got out that he wrote plays for the public, those aspirations of higher office may have been stymied. He was also a lawyer at the time, even being promoted to Attorney General of England and Wales in 1613, and many of his writings on scientific philosophy at the time are considered the precursors for the scientific method. To summarize, he was a very serious, studious man doing very serious, studious things in a position of great power. Being known as a playwright, a low-class profession at the time, would have undercut that severely. Many of the Victorian thinkers of the 19th century believed that the author of the plays was a man of vast and boundless ambition and attainments, a philosopher, a poet, a lawyer, and a statesman. Francis Bacon seems to tick all those boxes much more than Shakespeare himself. One twist that had put Bacon as the top candidate initially was the theory that he had in fact revealed his authorship of the Shakespearean plays through secret ciphers hidden throughout the text. In 1605, Bacon had published a type of cipher called a bilateral cipher that needed two typefaces in order to be legible. The message would be concealed in how the text was presented rather than the actual content of the text. The first typeface would be considered a zero, while the second would be a one. Each letter of the alphabet in the cipher was made into a five-bit code, a precursor to the binary that is used in computers today. Many of the Baconians, or people who believe Bacon wrote Shakespeare's work, say that Bacon had hidden additional messages in the first folio of Shakespeare's slash Bacon's work with a bilateral cipher. The first people that claimed to have found this cipher, Orville Ward Owen and Elizabeth Wells Gallup, said that Bacon had encoded a secret history of England at the time, including the revelation that Bacon may have been the illegitimate son of Queen Elizabeth, the reigning monarch. Further, The plays were thought to be an attempt by Bacon to provide a spiritual transformation of England in a way that he could have potentially managed if he were the monarch. The Baconian theory was the leading theory of anti-Stratfordian thought until the 1950s. 
1957, William and Elizabeth Friedman, a husband and wife who were among the foremost cryptographers of the time, published a study of all the different ciphers proposed by Baconians that were said to have existed within the first folio. The Friedman showed that the cipher method was very unlikely to have been used by the author of Shakespeare's work, concluding that none of the ciphers claimed to exist by the Baconians were valid with the parameters given. Later typographical analysis of the first folio showed that a large number of typefaces were used in its production, rather than just the two needed for a bilateral cipher. Finally, the printing press technology of the time would have made it almost impossible to transmit a message with the bilateral cipher accurately. Over the last half of the 20th century, the Baconian theory fell out of favor. If you prefer your candidates to have lived their life as a playwright, poet, spy, and enemy of the crown, and fake their death in order to become a massively successful playwright under a different name, you may be interested in Christopher Marlowe. Marlowe was Shakespeare's predecessor as the preeminent English playwright of the Elizabethan era, coming acclaimed for his use of blank verse. Same rhythmic structure, often same number of syllables, but did not rhyme, which Shakespearean plays used to great effect. Basically, if something sounds Shakespeare-y, Marlowe did it first. His first produced play was performed in 1587, when Marlowe was just 23. He published five additional dramas, two books of poetry, and translated two books of Roman poetry into English, all by the time he was 29. However, Christopher Marlowe would not write again, as he was killed on May 30th, 1593, after being stabbed above the right eye by an acquaintance with whom he was dining at the time and buried in an unmarked grave on June 1st, 1593, immediately after the inquest into his death concluded. For the Marlovians, the people that believe that Marlowe was the true author, this is where the story gets interesting. First, you'll need some background on the non-playwriting side of Marlowe. Before he was a playwright, it was alleged he was in fact a government spy, recruited in 1583 during his time at Cambridge University by the Privy Council, a group of advisors to the Queen of England. The evidence of this was that during 1584 and 1585, Marlowe was absent from the university for a significant enough period of time that he should have been expelled under normal rules. Additionally, records from the college showed that when Marlowe was at university, he was spending far more on food and drink than his scholarship should have allowed him, implying that he was getting money from somewhere else. Finally, when Marlowe was about to be finished his master's degree in 1587, rumors were flying around that he was going to an English Catholic college afterwards with the intention of being ordained in the Catholic Church. This was against a law put in place by the Protestant Queen Elizabeth I, which forbade any citizen of England to be ordained as a Roman Catholic. The dean of the university was about to withhold Marlowe's degree due to these accusations when the Privy Council intervened, saying that Marlowe had been engaged in, quote, affairs on matters touching the benefit of the country, and blatantly denying the rumors that Marlowe was intending to be a Catholic. Even then, when a student vanishes for long periods of time, shows up with large amounts of money, and the literal government of the day interjects on his behalf to say that, yeah, he was doing a thing for us, don't worry about it. That does add up. Marlowe was alternately accused of being a Catholic, or worse for the time, an atheist, for most of his adult life, 
and on May 18, 1593, a warrant for Marlowe's arrest was issued for allegedly penning a handbill threatening Protestant refugees from Europe that had settled in London. Marlowe presented himself to the Privy Council per the arrest order two days later and was given orders to, quote, give his daily attendance on their lordships until he shall be licensed to the contrary. So, Marlowe had daily meetings with the Privy Council for ten days before his death. Odd, but even more so when you factor in who he was dining with that fateful day. You see, Marlowe was not just dining with that acquaintance, one Ingram Freiser. He was also meeting Robert Poley and Nicholas Scares, two men who are now known in the present day as double agents and spies also working for the Privy Council. This meeting was known to have taken place over ten hours, which Marlovians claim is far too long a meeting if the goal of the three other men was just to kill Marlowe. The Marlovian theory was that the three men and Marlowe came up with an idea to fake Marlowe's death, as he was under far too much scrutiny with accusations of atheism and turning others to atheism to function as a spy. These were capital offenses at the time, meaning that execution was possible if the charges were proven to be true. So Marlowe also had that motivation to fake his death and start anew elsewhere. What seemed like a cut-and-dried death by way of drunken fight at the time got a good deal more muddied with modern analysis. The three men who Marlowe met with were literal professional liars, so their stories were considered dicey at best. Also, the wound above the eye that supposedly killed Marlowe would not have been severe enough to cause instant death per the men's story. At the very least, Marlowe would have had time to try and put up a fight or escape. Even to this day, the circumstances around Marlowe's death and or disappearance are shrouded in enough mystery that the full story may never be known. The Marlovians theorized that Marlowe faked his death, started his life anew as William Shakespeare, and was the writer of all of Shakespeare's plays, using Shakespeare as a front. Coincidentally, the first piece of work attributed to Shakespeare, Venus and Adonis, was published within a couple weeks of Marlowe's death. The problem with this theory is threefold. First, the sheer amount of legal documentation surrounding the incident, the inquest thereafter, and the interrogation of the three witnesses makes this one of the most well-documented trials of the time, which almost all scholars acknowledge as sufficient proof that Marlowe did in fact die on that day. Secondly, Marlowe had a self-proclaimed weakness when it came to writing comedies, to the extent that he never published one in his life. Shakespeare, on the other hand, was a prolific writer of comedies, many of which became his most successful plays. Thirdly, imagine if you were Christopher Marlowe and had in fact faked your death. You have a whole new identity, a whole new life in front of you. And what do you do? The literal exact same profession your old identity did, but more famous in a fame-driven and gossipy industry without leaving a trace of your identity and giving all the credit to someone else entirely. That seems an absolutely insane thing to do. The most popular theory of the 20th century, and one that persists to this day, is the theory that Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford, was the true author of the Shakespearean plays. This theory shares a lot of commonalities with the Baconian theory, with a bit of a Shakespeare-in-love twist or a massive soap opera twist, depending on which variant of the theory you believe. 
Historical documents show that de Vere spent over a year of his life living and traveling throughout Italy, where almost half of Shakespeare's plays were set, including Romeo and Juliet and The Merchant of Venice. Many Oxfordians, or believers in the Oxford theory, point to the intimate knowledge of Italy that the plays seem to have as proof, since Shakespeare himself never left England. De Vere was also supposedly fluent in Italian, and Shakespeare's Italian-centered plays had a good deal of Italian sprinkled throughout. De Vere was also a lawyer, as well as a member of courtly society, so he would have had both knowledge of court occurrences and legal matters, which played prominently in Shakespeare's historical plays and sonnets, respectively. He also ticked the box of being highly educated, which was one of the main beliefs in the 19th century of what the true writer of Shakespeare's works should be. The evidence that many Oxfordians hang their hat on, however, are the similarities in events in De Vere's life to those in Shakespeare's plays. Hamlet is one of the strongest examples of this for the Oxfordians. Spoilers for an over 400-year-old play are going to follow, so if you're wanting to go into Hamlet spoiler-free, please fast forward a couple minutes. Okay, now we get into the meat of this. In the first act of the play, we find that Hamlet's father was murdered and his mother remarried within two months, an amount of time that was far too quick for Hamlet's liking, to say the least. Similarly, De Vere's father died in 1562 when De Vere was 12 years old and his mother remarried within 15 months, which wasn't unusual for members of higher society at the time, but would probably have had an effect on the boy. Additionally, the character of Polonius seems to have had many parallels to Sir William Cecil, De Vere's legal guardian after his father died. Cecil had control over the De Vere estate until Edward turned 21, so it was safe to say that there were some harsh feelings on that front. In a very shrewd political move, Cecil allied his house with De Vere's by marrying off his 14-year-old daughter to Edward, who was 21 at the time. As a result, Cecil had cemented his connection with the second most powerful earldom in England, and De Vere must have felt some aggravation at his former guardian, now current father-in-law. Oxfordians say that Hamlet was more an autobiography than anything for De Vere. Now all of that does follow, but there's nothing remotely adjacent to the soap opera twist that I promised earlier. Well, hold on to your socks because I'm not done yet. There's a secondary splinter theory for some Oxfordians, known as the Prince Tudor theory. This theory states that not only did Oxford write all of Shakespeare's plays, but he also fathered an illegitimate child with Queen Elizabeth I. This child was given the name William Hughes, and he would later go on to become an actor, under a pseudonym. Guess which name he chose. Go on, take a guess. I'll give you a hint. He only changed the last name. William Shakespeare. He took that name because he knew his father wrote under the pen name, which he took from a third William Shakespeare, who was the man we know from Stratford-upon-Avon, but he was just a law student, not an actor or a writer. Shakespeare's sonnets are considered by those Oxfordians to be written to his actor son, who is the fair youth mentioned in many sonnets, and Queen Elizabeth, who is the dark lady in many of them. The Prince Tudor theory is not accepted by many Oxfordians, who thinks it puts their cause in a less reputable light. Even so, Edward de Vere was considered the prime alternative candidate for who actually wrote Shakespeare's works during much of the later 20th century, to the extent that they actually took their argument in front of the Supreme Court. Well, kind of. 
1976, a writer named Charlton Ogburn Jr. was elected president of the Shakespeare Oxford Society, an organization that was the largest collection of Oxfordians in North America. Ogburn Jr. had the realization that the Oxfordians were hitting a brick wall trying to convince the academic establishment of their theory. They needed to take their arguments directly to the public. The society altered their approach and circumvented academia entirely, appealing to the media and the public that Oxford was a candidate on equal footing with Shakespeare himself, and it was only an entrenched authority put into place by conventional academic thought that kept this from being true. Considering that this was less than five years after the Watergate scandal, the public was very receptive to the thought that there was some significant truth being covered up by those in power, even if that was about a playwright from over three centuries ago. As much as they could, Ogburn and the Society got attention on the issue through television debates with noted Shakespeare scholars, opinion editorials and whatever outlets would publish, and through moot court trials, where arguments were made in front of a mock jury or judge in order to see who had the most persuasive argument. After over ten years of non-stop effort, Ogburn was confident enough in his arguments that he wanted to have them validated by the top legal minds in the United States. On September 25, 1987, three justices on the Supreme Court of the United States convened a one-day moot court to hear the Oxfordian case. The society presented all their evidence, explained all their theories, and made sure that every part of their argument was made known before the three justices. At the end of the moot court, they waited for the judge's verdict. Unanimously, the justices declared that the Oxfordian case was based on a conspiracy theory with no concrete evidence, and that the reasons given for how this conspiracy occurred were both incoherent and unpersuasive. One of the main reasons that this theory was said to not hold water was that Edward de Vere died in 1604, before many of Shakespeare's plays were published. Oxfordians said that the post-1604 plays were finished off of drafts provided by de Vere, but the argument was not accepted. Undeterred, Ogburn decided to try again on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean in Great Britain. A retrial of the argument was scheduled in November of 1988. Unfortunately for the Oxfordians, the American verdict was confirmed. Ogburn took that as a clear defeat, but the deciding blow to the theory was happening back in the United States. Beginning in 1987, analysis of a different sort was being done on the works of Shakespeare. Ward Elliott and Robert Valenza, two professors at Claremont McKenna College in California, began a stylometric study of plays and sonnets attributed to Shakespeare, as well as the collected works of 37 different authors who had been proposed by various factions as the true author. The continuing study, known as the Claremont Shakespeare Clinic, used computers to compare the Shakespeare plays to other claimants in terms of keywords used, frequency of use, and words avoided. Oxford was one of the main claimants, and Eliot and Valenza found that not only did the works of Oxford not match Shakespeare's stylistically, Oxford isn't even the claimant that matches Shakespeare's work the closest according to the computer test. That honor belonged to Walter Raleigh, and even that had a less than 2% possibility of common authorship. The clinic performed five more tests on the work of Oxford and 19 other Elizabethan poets, including frequency of hyphenated words and relative clauses, word and sentence length, and percentage of open and feminine-ended lines. Overall, the Shakespeare works used open and feminine endings more frequently than other Elizabethan playwrights, and relative clauses less frequently. 
The clinic also found that Shakespeare's writings were very consistent with themselves, which meant that by and large, it was probably only one person writing them, rather than a group of people, as some theories have stated. Finally, neither Oxford, Bacon, nor Marlowe's writings came out anywhere near Shakespeare's in the modal test, or the five more conventional tests. Eliot and Valenza concluded that it would have been almost impossible for any of these three playwrights to have written the works of Shakespeare as they had been published. The origin and reappearance of the Shakespearean authorship question came from two very different societal changes. The origin was the beginning of the public shift in perception of Shakespeare from successful playwright to the greatest playwright who ever lived and their genuine disbelief that the son of a glover had access to the knowledge and learning to write the way he did. Many academics and playwrights hundreds of years later had a romanticized idea of a university-educated, well-traveled man putting his personal experiences on the page, rather than an actor who simply had access to enough books that he could make a decent guess as to what a place is like. Amazingly, the idea that someone could write about something they hadn't personally experienced did not seem to have occurred to anyone back then. The reappearance of the authorship question in the public mind in the 20th and 21st century was less about the public's unwillingness to believe that Shakespeare could have written his works, but rather about their willingness to believe that a government or authoritative body could execute a cover-up so well as to be undiscovered for hundreds of years. It's no coincidence that conspiracy theories as a whole increased at about the same time as the Shakespeare authorship question went back into vogue. If someone could cover up a break-in at the Watergate Hotel for as long as they did, what else could they be covering up? Or so the theory goes. By and large, the authorship question remains one of the more interesting conspiracy theories, in my opinion. The shift in opinion from, this is impossible for Shakespeare to have done this, in the 18th century, to, anything is possible, including a massive cover-up of the true author's identity, in the 20th and 21st century, while still maintaining the same conclusion, is absolutely incredible. Not only has the theory been maintained, but wilder variants of it seem to spring up. But I suppose, as Shakespeare himself wrote, there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. Or maybe it was Oxford, or Marlowe, or Bacon, or whomever. I'm Braden Thorvaldson, and I'll talk to you in a couple weeks. Audio mixing for this episode was done by Craig Murdoch, who could auto-tune this entire podcast, but in his infinite wisdom does not. If you want to be up to date with all things podcast-related, why not follow us on Instagram at WhatExplainPod and on our Facebook page as WhatExplainPodcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have some time, please rate and review us. It does help push us to the top of some algorithms, making sure more people can hear the podcast. Word of mouth is also immensely helpful. So if you have a friend, family member, coworker, or favorite grocery bagger that you think may like the show, please let them know. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you all in a couple weeks. Bye.